The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. It's nice to be back. I've been away for a couple months, most of the last couple months, teaching out of town and also being on retreat myself. Really grateful for the folks that taught while I was away. We have a really great group of teachers now in the community that teach other programs, but also sub for me when I'm gone. And we're going to come back to uh, and finish up really what we've been looking at the last 10 months or so, this set of teachings around the 10 paramis, the 10 paramitas, or the 10 beautiful, powerful qualities of the heart. And I always say, when I bring this up, that these are the qualities that we would probably come up with on our own, just as being really valuable in terms of functioning as a human being, like the capacity to be generous instead of stingy, or the capacity to restrain when we want to harm somebody else because we value deeply non-harming, or the capacity to commit to truth, being honest to ourselves, honest with others, as opposed to playing loose with the truth, or the capacity to, uh, to sort of let go, renunciation, to live in a simple way or to be content with what we have, or the power to be resolute when we know that something is skillful or useful to stick with it, or this capacity to be kind or equanimous or patient. So these are the 10 Parmes, energized, I think is the one I missed. So that, that finishes the list of 10. And the one we haven't talked about over these last 10 months is equanimity. So we'll take the next three weeks, maybe four weeks, and we'll look at equanimity. And this is an especially potent quality in the Buddhist tradition. In a way, equanimity, I mean, not that we really, it takes a while to really get what the Buddha means by equanimity. I mean, we have a sense of non-attachment or not being so reactive, not being so uh, in need of things being a particular way. So we have a general sense of what it means to be equanimous, to have equanimity. But remembering that it's a real insight because otherwise it tends to be then we start to imitate being equanimous in the same way that we might imitate being compassionate or being, you know, truthful. We don't really, it's not coming from the inside out. So what were this, you know, next few weeks as we take up this theme, this study theme of equanimity, and we're just sort of, you know, moving through our day like we would otherwise, but now we have this theme. So we're kind of curious about equanimity and whatever we want to call the opposite of equanimity, like reactivity. And just everything along that spectrum from being really reactive to being really balanced, impartial, equanimous, okay with what's showing up in the moment. Not that it's even our preference that the conditions, my circumstances are this way, but the fact is, in this moment, they are this way. So I may do something to affect change, but I'm going to relax with the conditions that are already here. 
like the temperature in the room, it's already this way. So you may not like the temperature of the room, but is it skillful to get tight? Like let's say you don't like the temperature, it's too hot or too cold. We don't, it doesn't make sense to get tight, even though if you had some power, some responsibility, you might you know, turn the AC on or turn the heat on or shut the windows or whatever it might be. But we have this other possibility like, well, it's not really my responsibility to control the temperature of this room. So I have this other possibility, which is to be equanimous with the unpleasantness of the temperature not being as I want it. Take these weeks and really get interested in that play from the mind struggling, being reactive, some very strong thought, this is not okay, this has to change, this isn't fair, to, well, this is the way it is. If there's something I can do about it, I'll do it, as long as it's not harming myself or others. But if there's nothing I can do, then I'm going to be okay, because I have this deepening talent to live with the conditions that are showing up. And that what's so interesting about this study of equanimity is to get clear of the difference between what we call equanimity and complacency or resignation or giving up right? or being indifferent even. Because these qualities can look like equanimity, but they're, they have a quality of suffering to them. When we're resigned, when we've given up, when we're complacent, there's a tightness in the mind, like a, the tightness of being helpless or resigned, like screw this world, you know, never delivers what I want, I give up. I give up being a happy human being. That's not the path, like, you know, we're, the community built this place and we come together to practice being you know, depressed and upset that the world isn't the way we want it to be, but at least we can do that together. Oh. Okay. Whose turn is it to complain next? <laughs> I really wanted it to be this way, but... <laughs> so even though it, the practice is hard, there's no doubt about it, but it is a path of freedom, awakening, it's enlivening, it's liberating. So equanimity is in the direction of real happiness. So that's what I, what I want to cover tonight, the first week we talk about equanimity, is to think about equanimity as the Buddha does, which is a reformulation of what happiness is. So normally, just as the convention, you know, cultural convention, maybe even universally true for humans, animals even really, Happiness is the equivalent of having what we want and not having what we don't want, right? So having a pleasant experience is generally what, how we understand happiness. When I have what I want, when my experience is pleasant, then I'm happy. And when I don't have what I want, I'm unhappy. And the Buddha basically is encouraging us to become more and more sensitive so that we begin to understand how that orientation, that happiness is getting what we want, is not really satisfying. It's stressful, actually. 
because we never get what we want, or we get what we want, but we can't hold on to it, it changes. It's not stable, ultimately, whatever it is, right? Because things come and go. Even if you get to that sweet spot, whatever it is, you know, and you've got the partner, and you have the place to live, and you have the respect that you want, and you have, you know, the vigor, the health, physical beauty that you want. Has anybody been perfectly content for long? You know, even those of you, those of us who've been relatively privileged or fortunate to have, you know, good conditions, good circumstances, haven't been oppressed a lot or haven't been abused much or manipulated, mistreated, and we've had good fortune, but this, just because we've had good fortune doesn't mean we're really happy. So the Buddhist formulation of happiness is a peacefulness of not needing the moment to be other than what it actually is. You see, that's a much more stable kind of happiness. There's the happiness of needing the moment to be a certain way and having it that way, but that's ephemeral. And there's the happiness of still having preferences like liking this temperature more than that temperature or this kind of food more than that kind of food, but the happiness of my mind, even though it has preferences, not dependent, not neurotically dependent on the conditions being the way I want them to be. Because so that's a happiness of independence. The mind, the heart, generally it's gradually, gradually becoming independent. <coughs> For example, if we are, even pay attention a little bit, we realize how imperfect our society is. There are a lot of systemic injustices. People are systemically mistreated in our culture. Women, for example, and people of color, and people who grew up on the wrong side, side of the tracks, or who, who haven't been well-educated, or any number of other ways that we have mistreated and marginalized people. And if we're one of those, if we fit one of those categories, or if even in one moment, you know, we've been privileged, but the person we love has left us, or the job that has supported us has been taken away, or the body that was vigorous and healthy is not vigorous and healthy anymore. We feel betrayed. So is there a way for, is there a mind, a heart, a way of being, or you could say an understanding that's okay, that's stable, that's clear, that's free, that's alive, that can be intimate, even when the conditions are not suitable. So if you're, if you're experiencing, for whatever reason, being marginalized, difficult circumstances for any reason, does that mean you have to be unhappy? So you lose your job, or you grew up in the wrong neighborhood, or you have the wrong color of skin for a particular culture, the kind of you know, background that 
doesn't have a lot of advantage. So does that mean you have to be unhappy because you have challenging circumstances? Even though you might by commit to changing the conditions in the society, but you have to be unhappy while you're doing that. Is happiness dependent on conditions being the way we want them to be, the way they should be? Or is there a happiness that's independent of the particular circumstances in the moment? And at least what I'd recommend, I think the Buddha recommends, we should at least have an open mind that there is a happiness that's independent of conditions, circumstances. That if we train the mind can replace our fixation on a happiness that's all about particular circumstances, having a partner, having some sort of idealized story we have about who we are and what happiness looks like. I mean, we think we need that idea, this image in my mind of what it looks like. You know, for me, it's, it's like, uh, well, if I'm going to be a Buddhist meditation teacher, I should have really good sits, right? So, you know, my perfect image of myself is like, yeah, I sit every day for six hours and I'm in perfect bliss, you know, and I understand things exactly as they are clearly. And uh, I never break the precepts. I always live out this commitment to not harming and all of the ways. I totally get how my mind, my heart's been conditioned by culture and I'm not confused by all my you know, systemic or conditioned prejudices that have arisen from watching Leave it to Beaver and <laughs> My Three Sons and all those early 60s shows that conditioned my mind and all of that. But that's, boy, that's, so, that's a prison to sort of have to make the world the way I idealize happiness, the way I picture it or tell myself a story about what happiness looks like for me. You know, and people treat me a certain way and my partner's a certain way and my cat's a certain way and, you know, all these things. And it's just, it's endless because we're constantly in a contentious relationship with life as it's showing up moment by moment because we're trying to make it fit our picture, our story of what happiness looks like for me. Massage it, you know, or deny it if it doesn't fit at all. Or we could cultivate this independence. So the reason we spend a lot of time in this, you know, Buddhist meditation training, stabilizing the awareness, deepening the samadhi, the concentration or the sensitivity of the heart, is we want to wake up. We want to realize a happiness that's different than the happiness we've been conditioned to seek. A happiness that's already here. We In Buddhism, we say it's an unconditioned happiness. So this is why equanimity is such a big deal in, a, in, in Buddhist practice is because equanimity is in the direction of this unconditioned happiness. A happiness despite the particular circumstances like being old and having a achy body or being mistreated even. It doesn't mean that the mistreatment doesn't hurt and it doesn't mean we won't do something to end it. It just means that we're learning to abide in a happiness 
as we're doing whatever we should do to make conditions better. So it's not oblivious. It's not like we're not aware that abusive conditions are abusive. And you see this sometimes. You see people who are, you know, involved in some outward struggle, like they're an activist in some way. And they're, you know, in their activism, maybe they're being abused. I mean, fortunately, we have some stories. We have some history that, you know, opens up where we see these people who are involved in a, a great struggle and it's difficult. And they may not even, maybe they're not even fully successful. They're sort of one step forward, two steps back, two steps forward, one step back. But what's really useful is when we look into the lives of these fully engaged people and we see they're happy being engaged in the struggle of making the world a better place. They're not like postponing happiness and peace and ease until the world's a a better place because it may not be a better place. Like maybe because... First of all, we're not in control. Maybe we're really, you know, in some ways going to hell. Environmentally, socially, politically, economically. I mean, let's just say. Because certainly that's conceivable. That things are going to get worse on a lot of these fronts, right? But isn't it also conceivable that we can be awake to this, like not get lost in the endless videos that we can watch on the internet, the big discovery recently for me was finding out that we haven't had TV or cable ever, I think, in our house. Um, but I realized recently, because um, I read the, I shouldn't even say this, I read the books, The Game of Thrones, a while back. <laughs> and so I'm curious about <laughs> the, the TV version. And that you can get HBO on your computer now. You know, you can just go to the website. Don't do it. <laughs> So it's endless. The entertainment is endless. And it's so easy to sort of think, well, I'm just going to entertain myself until it, until it ends, basically. And it's not just with videos. I mean, we have other ways we can entertain ourselves with interesting food and interesting conversations and interesting books and things that might appear to be more skillful than, you know, watching HBO on, on your computer. But maybe we can be even more happy waking up to all the imperfections locally, like in my own heart, the imperfections of my personality, and outward concentric circles to the whole world, the big problems in the whole world. Like really engage them, really show up, really respond, but not feel like we have to sacrifice being happy, being alive, being peaceful, peaceful, uh, fearless, Maybe we can do both. We can be engaged, we can care, and we can also be happy, even if our efforts to make it a better place don't pan out. Maybe our efforts is just making it get worse more slowly, right? That would be okay. I mean, that would be nice that our efforts are sort of slowing things down a little bit. Or maybe all our efforts are doing is making us feel, you know, like in community, that at least we're coming together and we know that we care. So it's a, you see, I'm, I'm painting this picture on purpose so that we can 
start to open our minds to happiness that doesn't depend on somehow beating the system like death, for example, or old age even. It's like we can work pretty hard at avoiding getting older. We do, don't we? But I mean, what's that about? Does it work? (laughs) And how much more space in the heart, lightness in the heart there would be if we just put down that avenue of seeking happiness and let our hair go gray. You know, it doesn't mean that I, I, I totally feel like it's, you know, really good to take care of the body. This, you know, I'm not advocating, you know, forget, you know, why brush my teeth? They're just going to get dirty again. <laughs> why eat healthy food? I'm just going to get old and die. So it's, 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 it's just the opposite, actually, like, being willing to take care of the body, knowing that it's going to get old and get sick and die anyway. But still, I'm going to take care of it. And to engage communities, the communities that we're part of, in the same way, knowing that there are other forces of ignorance, you know, and sometimes they have more power and make things happen. But still, I'm, going to, I'm not going to give up. And to actually come alive in that process. I find that in my relationship with my partner, my wife, that, you know, it's like some of you are in committed relationships, and you know it's not easy being in relationship with other people, whether it's your sister or brother or parent or a lover or a cat, a dog, or whatever it might be, even part of the common ground community. Relationships are complicated. And uh, we're like, We, each of us, you know, we have our own conditioning. It's it's like our own trajectory. And they often don't line up in this sort of graceful way. But it's, so, but if we have this different point of view, then it's not about making the relationship perfect. It's realizing a perfect ease, a perfect understanding. Like the mind, the heart is understanding the relationship isn't supposed to make me happy. What makes me happy is being committed to making the relationship beautiful, even though it will never be perfect. Committed to making the communities we live in beautiful and healthy, even though we may never get there completely, fully. Or that even when we do hit the sweet spot, it will take constant maintenance. And even then, it won't always be so sweet. Right? So even in really healthy communities, really healthy families. Even then, it's not like, oh, we're here, the, ha- the family's in harmony, we're done. Right? It's just like even good marriages or good relationships, it's constant work. And we can imagine that work as in opposition to happiness, or we can see that work of living and engaging as a way of coming alive and realizing the freedom that isn't about the external conditions of our lives, circumstances of our lives, being the cause for happiness. So happiness is in the independence, like the willingness to be intimate no matter what's happening. Because my heart has learned to be independent of the pleasantness or unpleasantness of the moment. So I'm having my teeth drilled at the dentist. 
I, I really worked hard at avoiding. They tried to convince me from like 18 years of age on to remove my wisdom teeth. And I just said, you know, I just, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And then somewhere in my late 30s, they stopped telling me to do it because at some age, they, it's like, well, at this age, it's better to just hope you can make it to the end <laughs> without having to remove. Because I guess your bones get more brittle and the nerve gets closer to the, the impacted wisdom teeth. So now at 58, there's one, it doesn't cause any problem yet, but they're a little concerned because there's a little gap there and they think bacteria and now they want, now they're telling me, even though you're old, <laughs> you should have it taken out. And they make you watch a video of all the possible things, <laughs> which includes death. <laughs> and I thought it was interesting that they had the video say that and not the, the doctor, <laughs> the oral surgeon. <laughs> So it's like, I mean, these are, the, these are the circumstances we face, just having a body or having relationships. So it's not like we're going to ever figure it out so that we don't have these recurring problems. And not even, the, the trouble with the problems is we don't even know what the right choice is. It's not like, how do we know? It's just a matter of probabilities, and we don't even know what the probabilities are. I even asked the oral surgeon, you know, like, so what is the probability of complications? And the only answer he could give me was, well, it's about two or three times more than it would have been had you been young. <laughs> Doing it when you were young or something like that. But, you know, nothing like, yeah, well, you know, 2% of the people at your age, you know, have serious complications or something like that. So it's like, how do we even know what to do? We don't know. Same thing with any kind of, like... Uh, social issue that we care about, racial injustice or economic injustice, like what to do. Like I was at the website for um, 15 Now MN, they're a group of people trying to raise the minimum wage to $15 in Minnesota. And, uh, you know, and generally that sounds like really wise. But do we actually know what the repercussions are for people who are struggling to raise the minimum wage to $15? I mean, it's, I think it's great. I kind of advocate for it. But I, but I know, I have enough humility to know that I don't really know. I studied economics as an undergraduate. And these things are complicated. You know? And this is just the beginning. Everything is complicated. You know, do we start using nuclear power to ward off global warming? I don't know. Right? Whether that's like better to do that and use less coal or... So there are a lot of these things that we care about, like on the surface, where we all care about things, but we don't really know. So we have a lot of, it seems like we have a lot of incentives to be afraid and to kind of either go into denial or pretend that we know when we don't know. So we see how useful equanimity is because it allows us to be in this confusing place where we know we don't know, we're honest, and we know that we don't know but we know that it feels right to be engaged because we care. And we learn more as we engage and we try some things. And we're, we're not sort of assuming that we're right so that as we try something, we're paying attention to what gets set in motion. Is it having the positive effect that we want, that we need? And then we treat each other so much better when we have that humility. So as we're advocating, as we're struggling to make the world a better place, 
and somebody seems to have a different idea, because we have humility, we're willing to listen. doesn't mean we do their idea, because we know they're just at least as confused as we are, and maybe a lot more confused. And especially if they seem 100% sure that they're right. <laughs> That's a telltale sign, you know, <laughs> that they probably don't know as much as you do. Because it's kind of healthy to know that we don't know with certainty. So equanimity, it may seem initially like it makes living life harder. Like I know with my partner, you know, when I'm certain she's wrong, initially it seems like stable, like I have some stability, like I'm pretty sure you're wrong and I'm right in the situation. But it's, it's more interesting ultimately and more alive when I have an opinion, but I'm not certain about it. And, you know, she has an opinion and maybe she's certain about it or maybe she's not, but I'm pretty certain that she's, that we don't know. And yet we have to figure this out. And so it really invites a, a willingness to listen and to, it's kind of like uh, be, be willing to be affected by everything. Right? That's part of what being intimate is. And it just turns out, I think, that our choices are so much more wise when we're willing to be affected by everything, willing to be touched by everything that's at play, willing to show up and be touched. And this is what equanimity allows. But see, remember, this is an equanimity that's not about distancing or being indifferent or giving up on it. It's an equanimity. This is an equanimity that actually, it's, it's exactly what allows us to come into the moment, into the confusing uncertainty of the moment. It's precisely because we're equanimous that we can be honest that we don't know. We don't know what's right. We don't know who we are. We don't know who the other person is. Now, initially it seems really hard, but the key is, and this is why the Buddha emphasizes samadhi, like this stable, calm presence, and to cultivate this and, and to have it with some continuity, because we need to, to really develop this kind of equanimity, we need to notice something. We need to notice that it feels good to drop the certainty, to drop the sort of identification with the struggle, that that feels good. Because when we're in our identification of right and wrong, we're actually distancing ourselves from the present moment. And that distancing can be noticed as a kind of stress. It's a, it has both the flavor of a deadness. Like when I'm in a fundamentalist view of something, like even something like Buddhism is right, you know, it's, everybody should be mindful. It seems right. But if I become fundamentalist about it, that certainty that I'm no longer vulnerable, present, because right? we, we can only land in the present moment when the mind is in an unformed, unfixed place, which is what I mean by humility or knowing that we don't know. We're aware, but you can't be aware. We can't be aware and certain at the same time. Because if we're certain, then the mind 
has a, an idea of what's happening, what's right or wrong. And so it's fixed, it's paying attention to the idea. So how can it be, to be mindful means it's like having rootlets out in every direction. Being intimate means we're aware of the whole thing, not fixed on an idea, which is an abstraction of the present moment. So as we begin to explore the reality, the sort of waking up to equanimity, this is what we need. This is what's really going to allow this to happen is we have to begin to notice and to it the very subtle ease of this impartiality, this simple moment of awareness. It feels good. Even though it's, in a sense, chaotic, there's a doorway into the present moment, which is the fear of letting go of our certainty, the fixed idea of what's going on, who I am, who you are, what's right, what's wrong. We have to let go of that. And so initially that doorway will be scary because we have the letting go of the certainty of our idea is scary. But then just beyond that, it feels right. It feels good. So there's a, I think it's okay to call it joy. There's a kind of joy that comes as we move in the direction of real equanimity. And there's a kind of stress, suffering, that arises when we're in the opposite, when the mind is in a fixed place. Holding to some concept, some idea, because it feels like it needs that certainty, that ground, that that fixation gives it. And just now start thinking about like in politics, in terms of your ideas about other people, how many places today our mind was fixed on an idea. Thinking that happiness comes from the certainty of this, the clarity this fixation gives us. So real clarity is realizing there isn't anything fixed. Right? So we start to wear down or tease out looking for happiness in the fixedness, in the certainty of the, you know, the ideas, the stories of the mind. And instead, this more, much more fluid, groundless place of equanimity. So the happiness is about being independent of needing that meaning, the certainty of the meaning. Does it mean we can't sort of have a conversation or have opinions about politics or about this, better ways to do this or to do that? It just means the mind isn't holding tight as a way to support the sense of self or ego. The ego isn't dependent on knowing with certainty. So it's willing to actually be impartial like, this is how I see it right now. You know, all of a sudden you're handed responsibility for Syria, okay? So this is what I'll do, but I don't know. I know that I don't know. But just because I don't know doesn't mean I'm not going to do anything. So let's try this. Or, you know, our cat had uh, an abscess. We just adopted a cat that was starving out actually by Common Grounds Retreat Property and had been getting beat up by some of the cats from the farms around us. Um, and uh, we checked with the neighbors. Anyway, my wife uh, decided to adopt the cat and, you know, just taking care of all the problems. 
And so we brought it in, you know, and they had the cone so it wouldn't lick. They, and they lanced the abscess to let it release. And, but now, it, you know, it's still there. And then, like, well, what do you do? Do you bring it back? It's so stressful to bring the cat back to the vet. And, you know, it's like all these things we don't know. But we can always practice being equanimous, like getting really close to the uncertainty and not choosing to not do something because we're afraid to do something when we're not sure, but not to have to reflexively do something because we're uncomfortable not doing something. Right? So we want to... That's, that's what equanimity is. It's like we're not afraid of action and we're not afraid of non-action, whatever that might be. Right? So that we're... We're specifically looking at how the mind is fixed and we're realizing that's not what I'm going... I'm not looking for safety in being fixed. I'm looking for safety and not the mind not being dependent on being fixed. And see, you see how that opens us up for really creative action or non-action. Because sometimes the most powerful thing we can do is wait. I mean, a lot of suffering happens because people, I mean, even nations invading other nations. Well, let's just wait a while and see how this thing plays out, right? That could have saved a lot of lives through the course of human history. Instead of, no, we can't wait. You know, this person has weapons of mass destruction. We don't know what they're going to do. So to think of, this is the thing of equanimity is, the mind realizes that we don't know, so anything, can, anything goes, basically, action or non-action. And then our practice is to keep noticing that deep habit of wanting to be certain and just keep reminding yourself, honey, you don't know. You don't have omniscience, right? You don't know everything. You don't see everything. Yet, you're responsible to do what you can do. Can that be okay? I mean, that's really how it is for us on all levels and with all of our responsibilities as citizens and person having a body. We don't know, but we're still responsible. So is that going to be a big burden that we want to hide from? Or is it a gateway to real happiness and love and freedom? Right? Isn't that that's sort of a whole different approach? This is why, you know, you know, we have these images of the nun or the monk having no responsibilities, sitting under the tree, meditating all day. But actually, <clears throat> having a family, having a job, being an activist, being an old person, you know, these are very interesting practice places, really important practices places. And even the nuns and monks, they eventually are made to be the abbess or abbot of the monastery, you know, once so they don't they don't get to sit under the tree forever. They become an elder and all of a sudden everybody's showing up asking them to help them with this and that. So we can either see this as a problem, you know, life, responsibility, uncertainty as a problem or as a gateway that teaches the mind where real happiness lies, a heart independent, not dependent. And how do we realize the heart that's independent? 
we have to be willing to be independent. I mean, intimate, because it's in being, I mean, you can't, it, there is a kind of equanimity. Like if you took me and placed me in the perfect cabin on Lake Superior, I prefer the South Shore, <laughs> and, you know, with just the right foods and the neighbors just close enough, you know, that we have, you know, just some sense of community, but don't want to hear them, don't really want to see them very often. <laughs> I could be pretty equanimous, you know, if there were enough breezes to keep the mosquitoes away and, you know, all the other things that would need to happen, not in the winter. <laughs> but but that's a, that kind of equanimity is, a, you know, it's sort of a very, it's a conditioned equanimity. It's the mind, the heart's equanimous because there isn't anything noxious going on. But we're interested in equanimity no matter the conditions, right? So that's why we need, you know, those of you who are parents, you need your kids. That's your teacher. Or you, if you're an activist, you need the resistance to what you see as moving in the right direction in a way of compassion. Because it will teach us how to be intimate no matter the conditions. And that's a freedom that's unshakable. That's really what the Buddha is pointing to. So we'll come back in the weeks ahead, keep talking about this, but I want to save some time. I'm sure, you know, we have all experienced a lot of reactivity. You can share from that, like how that isn't the way to happiness. And maybe moments of real equanimity and sharing those moments as being like what you learned in those moments or any questions you have about what I've said tonight. So what ideas, thoughts, comments, questions do you have that you'd like to share with the group? My name is Charlie. Um, So I was doing a guided meditation on equanimity. It was on YouTube. It was Joseph Goldstein. And the phrase, uh, which I've encountered elsewhere, was um, directed at whatever individual um, was you are the heir of your own karma Um, your happiness or unhappiness depends upon your actions not upon my wishes and I kind of get how that relates to everything that you were talking about but also it sort of seems almost individualistic like you are the heir of your own karma like it's your fault is sort of bootstraps mentality. So I'm just wondering if you'd comment on that because I'm interested in doing equanimity meditation, but those phrases feel kind of weird for me. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's a formal way to cultivate equanimity, which is what Charlie's talking about in terms of these phrases that are repeated. And, uh, and it really has to do with the relationship between equanimity and the teachings on karma. Karma just means intentional action, right? And the results. So when we act with intention, then in the mind and the heart, we set something in motion. I mean, out in the world, we set something in motion when we act, right? There are consequences to our actions. I say something to you, there are consequences, or I ignore you, there are consequences. But even more relevant is there are consequences within our own heart. Whatever we do with intention there are consequences. Like my mind is now the mind that did that thing, thought that thing, acted in that way. That's the mind or the, yeah, that's the mind going forward. So 
Yeah, what I usually change the phrase a little bit because <clears throat> what we're saying is your happiness, my happiness, arises as a lawful arising. So if we're in this moment, <clears throat> if anybody in the room is feeling unhappy or relatively neutral or relatively happy right now, <clears throat> that's not a random thing that you're feeling a little happy right now. <clears throat> the happiness you're feeling right now has causes. You may not be able to sort of dissect or deconstruct and get clear exactly what all of the different supporting lawful causes for the happiness you're experiencing right now. But you can be pretty clear, having observed your life, that it's not a random thing when we're upset, when we're happy, when we're neutral. It's lawful. So when we look at ourselves or we look at another person, we realize that your happiness right now is arising due to causes and conditions. My good wishes, my wish that you be happy, you be free from suffering, that's a beautiful thing, but it's a relatively small part of what you're experiencing right now from your subjective point of view, your happiness or unhappiness. Because that arises due to causes and conditions. One of the big ones is what are the intentional actions that have been done earlier that have set your experience right now in motion. Because if we want to know where what happened in the past, well, one thing we know for sure is this experience of my life right now, it arose from the past. So the best window into the past is this experience right now. The way it is for me right now is directly coming out of past causes. Where else would it come from? So in Buddhism, we often say that you want to know the past. Well, unless you're psychic in some way, the best way, the best window into the past is to get very clear about how it is right now for you because it's arising out of the past. And if you want to know what the future is going to look like, notice how you're relating right now to what's arising out of the past. So there's two things in a sense right now. There's what's showing up as a result of what was past and there is how the mind is relating to it. And how the mind is relating to this present moment is what's getting set in motion for the future. Right? So if, if you're relating to the present moment with a lot of kindness, then you're getting a window into the future. There's going to be more kindness in the future because that's how the mind is relating right now to what's showing up. You might have a lot of negativity showing up right now because it was practiced in the past. But if you're relating to that negativity with a lot of kindness, then you're setting something in motion in the future, not the negativity, because you're relating to that negativity with kindness. So we're really seeing, I care about you, Charlie, but I also understand that your happiness and unhappiness doesn't have a lot to do with my, the fact that I care about you. But I do care about you because I know what it's like to be a human being. So I care about you. I really wish well for you but I understand that your happiness or unhappiness depends upon, for example, how you're relating to your experience right now, not my wishes for you. So the idea of that, those kind of phrases is grounding ourselves in reality because equanimity is the kind of love that comes from wisely understanding how this works, how happiness and suffering works. Because then we're intimate. And that's our gift to the person, 
is like we're being really honest about how this works and what really leads to happiness. Not my wishes. You could all pray for me 24 hours. It might have an actual energetic positive effect for me. You all sort of radiating love or good wishes for me. But compared to me acting out anger, getting identified with anger, your good wishes for me will be, I'm guessing, a relatively small thing compared to my habit of getting identified with my my hate, right? Still, it would be great for you to be (laughs) sending your love. (laughs) Thanks, Charlie. Yeah, Andy. You mentioned intentional actions. Are they the same as conditioned actions? I mean, are your conditioned actions in the past intentional? Well, like let's say you're, it's late at, in the day and there's not much light and you're walking, and as you're walking, you're stepping on a lot of small creatures because you can't see them. And uh, <clears throat> you have no intention to step on the ants or whatever they might be. And if it were light, you would, you know, you'd do your best to step around them. But it's dark. You have no intention to harm. And you don't even have an intention to be disconnected or distracted. You're actually paying attention. It's just that the conditions don't allow you to be careful, right? Because it's dark. So you're causing harm. But so the question is, what kind of impact do you create karma? What kind of impact is stepping on that ant that you're unaware of have on your heart? Probably not much. But if you're walking and you had a bad interaction and you're walking down the sidewalk and there are bugs and you see them and you just like, on purpose, you don't care about them because you're pissed, you know, and you just... That action is affecting your heart. It leaves an imprint in your heart, that being negative in that way. I'm talking more about conditioned habits throughout your life. But if you're identified with them, see, the, the karma of that, if you're not aware of it, the karma of that is the mind acting in unawareness and, and delusion or not being awake. So there's karma, like thinking that it's okay, not that you even think this consciously, but the willingness to continue to be unaware is a karmic act, right? In other words, you're going to be more likely to be unaware in the future. That's the imprint that it's going to leave in the mind. If it feels safe and okay to be oblivious to how your actions are affecting other people now, it's going to be easier to be oblivious to how your actions are affecting other people in the future. Yeah. That's where it seems as... I like I connect it with individualism, sort of, because um, how how would you explain children doing conditioned actions? I mean, then does it come to affect their? Uh, you know, it's it's almost like saying, okay, well, when you grow up, you're unhappy, but you've practiced being unhappy, you know, all your life, or reacting to your, you know, surviving by doing this certain thing all the time, so then you have a habit. Uh, And so when you say, you know, that's your karma of how you feel right now, sort of, it's it's confusing. Well, what we say is, 
that how you feel right now arises conditionally. But we would never, in the Buddhist practice, we would never say you, because the whole point is it's nature, it's not a person. And the condition unfolding, you can never really understand completely. So we can know that things arise lawfully, conditionally, without understanding the intricacies of it or even where they came from. And it's not just individualistic because there's cultural conditioning. There's all kinds of part of that lawful conditional unfolding, right? It's not just an individual. And even the individual isn't an individual in the way we imagine it to be an individual. It's just different patterns. And where do those patterns come from? Which is nature. Where else would they come from? It isn't somebody selecting the patterns they have in their personality. So there's never anybody to blame, but in this moment, when I am aware of this defensiveness coming up in me, there's only one, uh, I have to take responsibility for it, you know, because things will just continue unless there's a mind that understands the lawfulness, the conditional nature, and can then participate in the conditional nature. See, this is where awareness comes in, and then we'll have to end. Awareness basically allows, in Buddhism, everything is just a movement of nature. And the idea of there being a center, different centers in nature, is just a story we have in our mind. It's a thought. Like, there's me, and there's you, and there's these other guys, and other folks, and it's just nature. It's just all these causes and conditions unfolding. And so, now we know this, right, because you heard it, <laughs> and uh, not that we believe it, but so it's interesting. And so, now, and then you hear this sort of rap on, like, well, let's be awake, let's be mindful. So now we've got this conditional, lawful, natural unfolding that's very complicated, right? There are a lot of different parts, aspects of the unfolding, the conditional unfolding. And now there's a new part of this conditional unfolding, this intention to be awake or to be mindful, which is like putting a reflective mirror in the middle or in the center of this conditional unfolding. And so now this conditional unfolding is getting, it has this feedback loop where it's aware that there's a conditional lawful unfolding and when it unfolds this way, it hurts and when it unfolds this other way, it doesn't hurt and it changes everything when there's this awareness there. So that's really the point, Andy. It's not about blaming anybody. It's about understanding that in this existential situation we find ourselves of having a mind and body, what helps? And what the Buddha says practically is what really helps is to put this reflective knowing in the middle of this thing called being a human being and things start to work a lot better. This feedback loop we get from being awake, being mindful, so that when we're acting in a self-centered way, that reflective mirror, that awareness sees, boy, things are getting tighter. It's harder being a human being all of a sudden acting in this self-centered way. And when, I, and when I act this other way, things feel lighter, more open, more clear. So it's really pragmatic. And it's, we want to be really good at not falling into this trap because there's a lot of shadows to the teachings on karma. 
because people interpret karma from a self point of view. But the Buddha was never teaching from a self point of view. And it's the whole point of his teaching is to help folks uproot that story of an individual, right, that's a moral agent and deserves its punishment because they've been bad. Yeah. But certainly, bad things happen to people, which is why we care. You know, it happens to us, to us at times, happens to others. That's why we're motivated. That's why when we hear this teaching, we're willing to check it out. Like, okay, well, let's put that reflective mirror. Let's cultivate mindfulness and see what happens. Does it work? Don't believe that it helps. Check it out. Cultivate a continuous, as much as you can, mindful presence in your life and see if you just don't naturally become more skillful and more happy and more loving or not. I mean, just check it out and then report back because <laughs> we learn a lot from each other. And we'll have more time for sharing in the couple of weeks ahead as we continue with equanimity. But it's time now to let go of the words and just take a few breaths and silence together just for about 30 seconds. Just appreciate being here in community together. It's always nice to appreciate how there's no way we would do this practice if we were on our own. So we really appreciate the Buddha who set these teachings in motion and all the women, all the men who've done the practice one generation after another, it ends up here in Minneapolis at this corner, this group of people. So we really appreciate the community. And you might even introduce yourself on the way out of the building. And it really helps so much in the practice to feel embedded in a group of people that are also interested in being more mindful or awake. So thanks everyone for coming tonight. Really nice to be back. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.